Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, The reading this morning can be found on page 1155. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the first 11 verses. So that's page 1155 and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15 starting at verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Dan, thank you very much, and good morning. A very happy Easter to you. Do keep the Bibles open at that reading from 1 Corinthians 15, page 1155, if you just close the Bible. And let's turn now to um, God to ask for his help as we look at uh, his word together. Father, on this Easter Sunday morning, as we think about the wonderful news of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we long that we would be people who live out in practice what it means to be those who trust in that wonderful news. We long to be people who bring glory to you by the way we live and what we believe in. And we ask this morning you'd help us to stand firm as we look at your word together. Amen. Forgetfulness can be a terrible thing. Uh, Some friends of ours know a minister who is a very fine man, a very able minister, very gifted in lots of ways. But he does have one terrible weakness, which is that... First thing in the morning, just after the alarm clock goes off, for about 10 minutes, he can't remember anything. He can't remember where he is. He can't remember what he did yesterday or what he's planning to do that day. There's a fogginess which surrounds his mind in those first few minutes every morning. And normally it's okay. He's learned how to, to get through that weakness day in, day out. But on one particular day, it didn't quite work. He got married. Uh, and uh, he got married to a lady he loves, and they had a wonderful day, two people very much in love with one another. But then the next morning, he woke up in a strange room. He had no idea where he was, what had happened, Um, and uh, he turned over, and in the bed next to him, to his hall, he saw there was a strange lady he didn't recognize, and he thought, oh my, what have I done? And then in a panic, he he got up and started to gather his things, preparing to leave. And then the lady turned around and looked at him and she smiled. 
And he got even more panicky and he blurted out, my, my dear woman, I'm so sorry, but I think I've made a terrible mistake. And with that, he bolted out of the room. It's a true story and it shows us that forgetfulness can be a terrible thing. If you're worrying about it, they did get it sorted out later on. Um, she was expecting it, but don't worry, it, it was all fine. Now we might be thinking, oh, come on. How could that possibly happen? How could you forget something that important, that momentous in your life? It wouldn't happen, would it? And yet, as we turn to our reading from 1 Corinthians 15, we find that there are people in grave danger of forgetting something even more momentous, even more important than marriage. Look at how Paul begins his reading, verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Why does Paul have to write if they already know what he's going to say? Well, he continues, verse 2. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. In other words, the unthinkable is a real possibility. These Corinthians, having heard and believed the wonderful, glorious message of Christ, having taken at one point their stand in that message, they are now in danger of forgetting it. And that would be far more amazing, far more unthinkable than that man on his wedding, the day after his wedding day. And so Paul writes to these Corinthians to remind them of what they already know. For some of us here, we've been Christian for many years. And as we gather on this special Easter Sunday, it's a chance for us to remember what we do know and love and stand firm in. And if that is you this morning, rejoice afresh in what you know to be true and leave here this morning all the more confident to stand firm in the future. But there may be some of us here today who um, don't come to church very often or maybe we, we used to come a long time ago and we, we've slipped out of the habit of coming and we're, we're foggy-minded, if you like. We're, we're, we're a bit muddled in our memory about what it means to be a Christian. Well, this morning as Paul explains to us the basics of the gospel, um, take this chance to be clear-minded about the essentials of what Christians believe. So what does Paul say to people in danger of spiritual forgetfulness and confusion? Well, first of all, he says, remember the content of the gospel. Verse three. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, I just want to pause there for one moment. Before we read on, what do you think Paul's going to say? If we ask people around and about what they think is most important to Christians, we get all kinds of answers. If you're like my friend I was speaking to you last week, he thinks that for Christians, the most important thing is good moral living. And so he would expect to find next a list of do's and don'ts. Other people might expect to find uh, a focus on the importance of love, of tolerance, of, of acceptance. Others might expect to find Christians talking about the importance of caring for our world and our environment. And all these things are good and matter and are important. But they aren't what Paul calls the things of first importance. Look at how he continues in verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins 
according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In other words, right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, there is a person. And that person died and was buried and has been raised again to life. We can't understand what these words mean for us this morning unless we understand three little words that Paul just drops in that change everything. Did you see them? Verse three, Paul says, for our sins. I don't uh, remember much from my engineering studies, but I do remember in particular one lecture where my lecturer gave us a real life case study, a problem to solve. It was um, a new office block had been built, one of these high-rise office blocks. And the problem that cropped up after it was finished was that um, at, at peak times, morning and evening, as people rushed in and left the building, the lifts weren't um, big enough to um, carry the load. There were only two lift shafts, and uh, first thing in the morning, big queues would form, waiting to get up into the lift and up into the offices. And so complaints started flooding in, uh, emails, letters, phone calls to the architect saying, you've got it wrong, can you sort it out, can you fix it? And the architects thought about it and they explored the options. One option was to put in new lift shafts, but there wasn't any space left in the building. Uh, they explored the options of installing faster lifts, but they cost too much. And then some bright spark in the architect office came up with an idea which cost £25. And uh, they went for it. And it worked. Do you know what the solution was? They bought a mirror and they installed it between the two lift doors in the lobby and they didn't get another complaint. The queues were still there, same problem every morning, but no one complained. Why does that solution work? It works because humanity, all of us, each of us, we have a particular bias towards looking out for ourselves. We want to know how we're doing, how we look, how we're getting on in life. We want our particular preferences, our particular way of doing things, our attitude and our choices to be at the front and center. We have first eyes for ourselves. Well, now, we get very good at covering it up in our relationships. We can put it to the back burner in our hearts. and People don't always see this sort of self-centeredness, but it's there and it crop, crops up in our relationships. As people live together and dwell together, you can see that there's a, a war going on, who's in charge and who wants to come first. And it matters and it spoils. But when it comes to our relationship with God, we can't hide it. And it ruins it. You see, that self-centeredness pushes God away. Pushes him to the, to the edge of our lives. We don't want God to be at the center of our hearts and our thoughts. And that is what sin is. We can't reduce sin to a list of do's and don'ts. Sin is a, an attitude, a lifestyle, a heartbeat which doesn't want God to be in the center of our lives. Unless we are in any doubt about how serious sin is, Paul says to us in verse three that it was so serious that it took the beloved son of God to die on a cross to sort it out. Christ Jesus died for our sins. And so Paul says, remember the content of the gospel. Now my guess is that many of us here uh, this morning do remember uh, the gospel. 
We're sitting here today going, yes, I agree with that. That's what I stand on. But as we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, we discover that these Christians, although they understood and believed the gospel, they had what I call a functional forgetfulness. When it comes to their relationships on the ground, day in, day out living, they didn't actually believe the gospel then. It didn't affect their lives then. Uh, it didn't affect their lives on Monday morning, bank holiday with the family, hanging out and doing something together, uh, dictating our priorities as a family, what we talk about, how we forgive one another, how we prioritize other people. Think about perhaps Tuesday, back in the office, uh, our, our goals for being in the office, how we conduct ourselves when we let other people down and they let us down. Those are the moments when Paul would say to us, remember the gospel then. Remember that you're forgiven then, that Christ has paid for your sins then. Functional forgetfulness is a big challenge for all of us. And Paul would say to us this morning, remember the content of the gospel. The gospel involves a man who died. Not just died, but he was then buried, which means that we know he definitely was dead. And then notice also it involves a final moment, and he was raised. And again, we can't understand what that means unless we understand four other little words that Paul drops in. See those four little words? On the third day, Paul says. On the third day. A reference to the gospel accounts of Jesus. He was buried on Friday in the grave Saturday, and on the third day, he was raised to life. And the point here is that the resurrection of Jesus is not some kind of metaphor for life that goes on. It's not that he lives on in our memories, in our heads. No, he's alive physically, bodily. It was on the third day he was raised and people saw him. The tomb is empty. And so when Paul says that he was raised on the third day, he is saying to us that the resurrection of Jesus is a, re- is a reality, flesh and blood. The internet has transformed the way that we shop. And as a guy, I'm thrilled because anything that reduces my trips to Meadow Hall must be a good thing. I'm not going there tomorrow. Um, but I, I can recall the first few times that I bought something online. It, it was a strange feeling. Did you have this feeling yourself? You, um, you take your credit card, whatever it is, your debit card, and you, you go to your screen and, you, and you, you pass over some hard-earned cash by typing in a few keystrokes and a mouse click to an unknown vendor you haven't met for an object you haven't actually picked up or seen and you don't see it straight away. There's always a wait. And you sort of hope the payment was enough. You hope the vendor will be faithful to his word or her word and that you will get the benefits of your purchase. And then you wait. I don't know, perhaps on the third day, the doorbell goes and there's a postman with your package in his hand and when you sign for it, you know that's when the transaction is complete and the deal is done. Not before and not after. And the resurrection in Paul's mind is a bit like that moment when you sign for the package and you take delivery of the gift that has been paid for. You see, the death of Jesus pays the price of sin. Sin deserves death and he died in our place. But how do we know that the death payment has been sufficient? How do we know the Father accepts the price? On the second day, we don't know yet. It's on the third day when Christ is raised to life. Death is conquered and the Father is the one who does the raising. The resurrection tells us that the death price was enough 
for all of our sin and that there is real, physical, tangible life beyond the grave. And so the resurrection matters hugely for Paul and it matters hugely for us. And oh, how we need a reminder of the reality of the resurrection. We've heard just now of of Brenda's death. There are many here this year who have experienced the death of a loved one close to us. We've heard just this week of the terrible news in Kenya of, what, 150 or so murdered, mainly Christians, because they believed in Christ. We live in the shadow of death. It touches us. We can't avoid it. And we too will experience death. And on this Easter Sunday, we remember that Christ has been raised, that the payment has worked, and there is for each one of us who trust in Christ, there is a physical, eternal life beyond the grave. And we need to cling on to it in the shadow of death. Remember, Paul says, the contents of the gospel. This is good news. This is news that we should want to share with everyone, our friends, our neighbors, our families, the workplace. This is the best news in the world. It is good news, and yet you can imagine the Corinthians as they listened to Paul, just wondering, is it too good to be true? Can we really believe it? Can we put a weight on it? Can we stand firm in this one who died, was buried, and was raised to life? For many people, the Christian faith is a a blind leap in the dark. You know, it's like um, living in this country on an April bank holiday, hoping it won't rain. Do you know, we have no confidence that it won't rain, no reason to think it won't rain, but yet we hope it might just not rain. And that's how many people view the resurrection. But not so for Paul. So after uh, reminding the Corinthians of the content of the gospel, next he reminds them of the credibility of the gospel. Notice three ways in which the gospel is so very credible. First, Paul reminds them that the gospel is biblical. Verse three, Paul says that Christ died according to the scriptures. Or verse four, Christ was raised according to the scriptures. In other words, this message of a man who died, was buried, and was raised to life is not a new message. It is not a message dreamt up by the disciples and the apostles. They're not like some politician who senses that their popularity is waning and so they dream up some new policy to win more votes. No, this thing of first importance is what the whole of Scripture testifies to. The the fallenness of the world, the need for rescue, the, the, the God who provides a rescuer who dies in the place of those who need it, the promise of new life afterwards. It is biblical, this Easter message. But it's not just biblical, it's also historical. Verse five. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. You see, the the gospel is historical. In other words, the the events of the gospel were done in public. 
before a live audience. The accounts we have are built on eyewitness interactions with Jesus. Uh, Paul's mention of, of the 500 who saw Jesus, I don't think is there to, to kind of wow us with a number of eyewitnesses, but rather for the, for the Corinthians, it was a chance to go and chat to these people face to face. Paul says, most of them are still alive. Go and speak to them. Find out for yourselves what they saw with their eyes. And so be confident in the credibility of the gospel. And we have their accounts passed down to us from age to age in the scriptures that we too may be confident This faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It is biblical. It is historical. And finally, it is transformative. The gospel is transformative. The story is told of a a nervous bride who was getting ready for her big day. Um, She was so nervous during her rehearsal that the, um, the minister sensed that she wasn't able to really take all the details in. She was always flustered and confused. And so he just took it to one side during the rehearsal and said, look, I know there's lots to bear in mind on the big day. I know your mind will be full of all kinds of things. And so if it's helpful, just remember these three key moments as you arrive. Uh, The first moment will be at the back. When you walk in, where shall I go? We'll aim for the aisle. That's where you start. Just start in the aisle and you'll be fine. And then as you walk along, um, don't forget where to go. Look forward and you'll see at the front of the church, you'll see an altar. Well, we don't have one here, but you know, that, that's how the story goes. So, so the, the, you walk in the aisle, and then the altar, and then and finally as you walk forward, you know when to stop when you get to your groom. So just think about him as you walk in. Well, sure enough, on her wedding day, she was dreadfully nervous, and she was a bit flustered, but as she arrived, she remembered those three little reminders, and it helped, and she walked forward with confidence. And as she walked in to the church, she was heard to, to mutter under her breath, aisle, altar, him. I'll alter him as she walked up to the front of the church. Now, that's not a true story, by the way, but that's just a story. Now, we laugh because we know that when we try to change people, we know it's very difficult. We know it's dangerous to begin a marriage thinking, I'm going to change someone else. I'm going to sort them out. That's not how we work, is it, as humans? And yet Paul says, Look at the transformation that has happened in in many people's lives. Radical transformation. Look at the list of people he mentions. There's Peter, who betrayed Jesus at his trial. And yet now Peter is a great leader of the church, a preacher of great boldness and confidence. Great transformation. Then there's the crowd, who shouted, crucify, crucify, on the Friday. And now they are the ones who testify to the risen Lord Jesus. There's James, the brother of Jesus, who thought he was mad, we read in the Gospels. Now able to testify freely to the risen Lord Jesus. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, there is Paul himself. Verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of all the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Christ. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Do you see in Paul this tremendous radical transformation? He was a persecutor of the church, a violent man heading in one direction. And now he is a man full of grace who loves the Lord Jesus, who can do nothing but proclaim him heading in a completely different direction. And Paul says, look at how much I've changed. 
Look at the transformation. What can explain that apart from the reality of the resurrection of Jesus? And for those who doubt the resurrection, one of the biggest things you have to deal with is the reality of the transformation of those in and around those great events. And so Paul says to us, remember the credibility of the gospel. Now as I finish this morning, I do wonder this. How can we tell if we are the kinds of people who are remembering rightly? How can we tell if we really are remembering the content and credibility of the gospel? I guess we want to be those kinds of people. Well, I guess there are lots of ways that we can check our own hearts and decide that for ourselves. But there is one particular way that Paul gives us this morning to test our hearts. It's there in verse 10. Paul says, no, I worked harder than all of them. You see, Paul is a driven man. He is a man of great industry. He gets up, I guess, early in the morning, goes to bed late at night. He works harder than all of them. And behind, I guess, each of us, there will be a set of drivers and priorities and motives that mean we get out of bed in the morning and we do things. Maybe at home, maybe with the family, maybe in the workplace. But can I ask each of us this morning, and I ask myself this as well, why? What drives us day in, day out? What gets us out of bed in the mornings? Can I share with you two things that have driven me in the past and things that I still struggle with today? Two powerful drivers that aren't good drivers. The first is this. The first is fear. It's very easy for me to be driven by fear. Fear of what people think of me. Fear of whether they think I do a good job. Whether I'm a nice person. Fear of whether they think I live a successful life. I wonder if you have experienced that fear as a driver. Perhaps as a parent, fearful that your children won't turn out the way you want them to turn out. That's people will look at your children and criticize you as parents. Perhaps as children, you're fearful that you won't live up to your parents' expectations. You won't get the right results, the right degree, the right job. In the office, fearful that we'll lose our job or not perform to uh, the level we are asked to perform to. Fear is a tremendous driver. It can make us work incredibly hard. What about this one? A desire for meaning. I guess I've experienced times when life feels empty and futile. I feel bored with life. There's a sense of habits and routine which is not good, which drives me crazy at times. And so one solution is to work hard to try to get around the boredom and the lack of meaning by sheer endeavor, to think, well, at least I've done this with my day. Therefore, at least life is worth something. I wonder what drives us this morning. Something will be. Something was driving Paul. Paul says, verse 10, no, I worked harder than all of them, a driven man. But do you see what drives Paul? It is the grace of the Lord Jesus at work in him. Can I say this morning, if there is anything at work in us that is driving us, which is not the grace of the Lord Jesus, that driver, that force will destroy us. 
I have in my mind a picture of when I was at the beach as a child. I used to run, I love running up sand dunes. And if you found a sand dune that was steep enough and soft enough, no matter how hard you ran up the sand dune, there'd be a point where you couldn't go any higher. You'd be running flat out, but you'd be stationary. And eventually you get exhausted and you give up and you slip back down. And that's what happens in life when we're running and competing and trying to get higher and higher. If we're driven by fear or a desire for meaning or something else, we just won't get high enough. If our confidence is in our career, at some point we'll fail. If our security is in the size of a bank account, we will just never get enough money to find enough security. If our confidence is in our children or in our grandchildren, they will never live up to our expectations enough to give us that level of security. It will destroy us. And so Paul says, I know a better way. I know a way to work hard and to do something with my life and to make a difference. It is the way of grace. Do you see it? Paul understood grace. For he was an evil man, a violent man. Nothing, he says, the least of all the apostles. And yet the Lord found him and turned him around and rescued him. And when Paul got that clear in his mind, saved by grace, his world was transformed and he worked harder than all of them. But not to prove himself, not to compete or to win, but out of joy, out of gratitude. And this Easter weekend, can I encourage you at some point, to grab a few moments, maybe with your spouse, with a good friend, with a family. And why not ask the question, what drives us as a person, as a family? What are we aiming for? What makes us tick? And if we are in danger of forgetting the gospel in that moment, we'll come back to it. Rejoice in it, stand firm in it. Perhaps this is all very new to you. Perhaps you haven't been to church for a while. Perhaps you're intrigued by this message of first importance and you want to find out more about Jesus and his life and his death and his teaching. Well, there's an excellent opportunity to find out more. Uh, We're starting a course um, after Easter called Christianity Explored. You can find details of the course in the little white notice sheet. There's a tear-off slip. If you want to find out more information, uh, do fill out the little slip, uh, tear it off, hand it in to me or to Paul. We'd love to chat to you. And there's details left for you about when the course begins and how it runs be a great opportunity to find out more about Jesus and this wonderful news. Forgetfulness can be a terrible thing. It can be devastating. And so on this Easter Sunday, this good Sunday, and as we share together this meal of bread and wine, let's not forget that there was one who died, who was buried, and who was raised to life for our sins on the third day. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this wonderful message. We would ask that on this Easter day, you'd help us to stand firm in it and not to forget it. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.